Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh Cedar, and I'm especially excited today because I have three panelists who are joining us. Listeners to the show know that the Therapy for Real Life podcast aims to translate research backed therapy and burnout prevention concepts into everyday actionable self-care strategies that any of us can use in and outside of therapy. So I had to invite Daniel Dawson, Yara McCowey, and Natalie Singleton, thank you, to the show because I'm a huge fan of their work and their new venture called the DEAR Project, which stands for Dialectical Engagement in Anti-Racism, which is an organization that facilitates emotion-focused and behavioral change-oriented anti-racism training for white people. So this, I think I told, uh, Dr. Watson Singleton on Instagram, it's like folks are having a party and talking about all my favorite subjects, including DBT, and I can't wait to hang out with all of you. So thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your expertise with our listeners. I know folks will be really excited to hear about the work that you're doing. Who would like to go first and tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing with the DEER Project? I can start. So Anna, thank you so much for this opportunity to really come together and to talk about, like you said, all the wonderful things, DBT and anti-racism. And so um, I am a licensed clinical psychologist who's been doing DBT, I think since maybe my third or fourth year of graduate school and have continued doing DBT in my clinical work. Um, And DBT is just sort of one of those great therapeutic uh, modalities that just has so much to offer to clients who have sort of a range of presenting concerns and had never really thought about bringing DBT to anti-racism before until a conversation that Yara actually brought to us. So I'm sure we'll have Yara jump in and sort of talk a little bit more about how that came to be. But really, it's about taking all of the wonderful things that DBT has to offer and applying it to this really meaningful conversation of how do we support white folks in the effective engagement and anti-racism advocacy. And again, using just all of the different skills that DBT has to offer, sort of distress tolerance, right? We know that that's sort of a key aspect of engaging in effective anti-racism is being able to even tolerate the intense, difficult emotions that come up from talking about racism. as a person who probably does not have a lot of practice talking about racism, right? I think about my own experience as a black woman. I feel like we talk about racism all day, all day, every day. But one of the things that I've learned in my conversations with uh, white friends, white colleagues is talking about racism really is a new or a newer experience for them, which can bring up a lot of difficult emotions like, you know, anxiety, fear, a discomfort. And so how do we support them in that process as well as give them skills to move forward? And so I'm just really um, happy and excited about this new opportunity that we have as DEER to bring this information to individuals, to organizations, um, and really bridging our expertise as clinical psychologists with this very real need that exists out there in the world. Ooh, you are seeing some things that are really exciting to hear about, and I have so many follow-up questions, but Yara, I heard your name named, and maybe you can help me with a couple of my follow-up questions, because number one, I know that 
DBT. Maybe you can tell me more about this. It sounds like you had a point of view of why this could be helpful in anti-racism work, but DBT is known for being very strategic and effective. And uh, Natalie introduced the idea that you are going to have training specifically for white folks. And I'm curious if you could um, introduce yourself a little bit more and say something about that point of view of how useful DBT could be in anti-racism work and the strategy behind speaking directly to white folks. Yeah, so um, Yara McCowie, and I'm also a licensed uh, clinical psychologist. Um, and, you know, so one quick thing about the origin in line with what uh, Natalie was just saying is that honestly, I think the first time I thought about this idea was um, on Facebook. I'm in a lot of Facebook social justice groups and, you know, I've also been doing DBT for years and years since probably my third year of grad school. And I had that same kind of like internal alarm go off that I have when working with clients. And I noticed a opposite of <laughs> dialectic, like an extreme thing where I'm like, no, let's, let's stop the discussion about is it this one or is, or is it this one? This is really a situation where it's both. And so I just kind of noticed that internal siren come up, um, especially when witnessing a lot of people get really frustrated and, and um, say, well, like last week someone said this, but then this week everyone's saying this, like which one is it? Um, and it definitely did not seem like the, the like which one is it was really productive um, or effective and just kind of led to stagnation and um, frustration. And You're so, hinting at that core part of DBT. It says it right away in the name, the dialectic, right? This is something that sounds like Deer Project knows um, quite a bit about is that idea of balancing two seemingly opposite truths. You found yourself almost like called to the same. <laughs> That's, um, there's a third way here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what about the strategy involved of um, using DBT as a model or uh, picking your audience? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, we've had a lot of discussions about um, our audience and I think that our decision to focus on white folks is because we thought that it was the most effective place to start. Um, and most of the lack of dialectics that we observed were happening among like white centered conversations. And so, um, so that's kind of our starting place, but we don't think that white folks are the only people that could benefit um, from this, especially as we've seen in recent events, um, you know, lots of disappointing actions from you know from from white folks and also uh, non-black um, communities of color um, but it's a starting place yeah that's a concrete i think dbt would call that concrete validation to notice oh there's a lack of understanding and in fact uh, new opportunity folks are asking questions or saying, what book should I be reading? How should I understand this? And as DVT practitioners, you have some information about how to take a dialectical approach and how to be non-judgmental in the process. I like the way that Natalie um, introduced the idea of code switching in that way of having a certain experience in the world. And um, gosh, what a generous offer to be willing to try to explain that to someone. That's what we call emotional labor. Um, and as listeners to this show know, we're trying to take a burnout prevention approach as we do that, as we um, maintain sustainability in that strategy. So it's uh, great to hear folks thinking about these concepts. So um, we haven't had a chance to hear from Danielle Dawson yet. And you know what, we've had, you know, just a little bit of an overview of DBT and, um, and our discussion around anti-racism and training and picking audiences. But just curious to hear from you, Danielle, what drew you to the DEER project or DBT or um, what would you like us to know about your point of view on the work? 
Sure. Um, so I am a graduate a doctoral student in clinical community psych, and a lot of my research kind of um, coalesces around responses to racism and healing. And I am very interested in acceptance-based therapies as utilities for that. And so thinking through how um, acceptance-based therapies can be used for healing, this healing approach is kind of tied to liberation and anti-racism. And so if we're going to be helping um, our communities, we need allies in that. And when we need allies, we need allies who are effective in that allyship and advocacy. And so part of my draw to this um, dialectic-based engagement with anti-racism is being able to draw in these strategies that would be so helpful um, in gaining allies that can help us in our liberation efforts. And so, um, yeah, those are the things that I'm really passionate about and really excited to start working with individuals and organizations in these efforts. Wow, that sounds like almost when, when I think of the DBT theory there, it's if we're going to have the best survival and health and wellness, you can't do that unless you live in a structured environment that supports your own survival. And so uh, you could do all the self-care in the world, but if you can't breathe the air around you or if you don't have safe housing, then you really don't stand a chance. And so um, you found in, in looking at the research and the options available to us, um, we can't, none of us can do it alone. And that requires allyship um, as part of your strategic planning. Wow. Um, when you came to acceptance-based therapy and um, looked at alternatives, did you when you're having conversations, do you notice that people tend toward other approaches first or really struggle with that concept of acceptance? Do you find, is there a knee-jerk reaction to, um, I'm just curious, as you came to that as one of the best practices, what is it that you're comparing and contrasting against? One of the main things with acceptance-based therapy, there's gonna be a, a little bit of a pushback because the idea of like accepting things. Um, and it's not, it's important I think to to delineate, it's not that we're expect, accepting circumstances, we're accepting um, that we are human and that our responses to circumstances um, are things that we can um, focus our energies on. And so I think the thing that acceptance-based therapies can bring us is really a person's focused and a historical and socio-political context focused um, way of that of approaching the therapeutic um, alliance and so there are other ways that we can adapt like CBT approaches to also have some type of awareness of that but I think that acceptance-based therapies lend themselves more to that being part of a therapeutic stance if that makes sense. That makes that a lot of sense to me. That's why this is called the third wave therapies, right? We had maybe starting out with talk therapy in the olden days and the catharsis of getting it out and second wave, more like changing your thinking about it. Um, and third wave says never do CBT alone. You're going to have to incorporate some amount of acceptance um, to balance out that change. Here we are going back to dialectics. So thank you so much for doing it. I think that was quite the tour of uh, some of the greatest hits when it comes to DBT. I'd, I'd love to move us now to this recent article that the three of you wrote together. Uh, correct me on the title, but it was something along the lines of how not to be a Karen. Um, finish it for me in something about dialectics, right? Would you tell me about um, that wonderful piece? I could, I almost imagine the three of you almost in a flow state writing about dialectics and um, getting some of this down on, um, on Medium because it sounds like you've been thinking about these concepts for quite a while. Could you tell me about that article that you wrote? Yeah, and I think we should have Yara start. She was the one who I think rallied us all together around it <laughs> in our in our group chat about, you know, really bringing this dialectical lens to how do we 
again, like help white folks get unstuck in talking about anti-racism. So Yara, do you want to sort of kick us off? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, I think the, it, was, it was a process because there, were, there are so many dialectics that we were working through. And even, I think one of the hardest things was settling on, on like what the, the challenge is, like what the challenges are, like the different ends of, of the spectrum or what the seemingly conflicting messages are. Um, and our goal was really to capture three of those tensions that we thought were the most important. Um, they're not the only ones, there are definitely others, swaps that we considered, but these were the ones that seemed to be the most salient um, that came up a lot um, and that had, I would say, the biggest consequences in terms of not settling them or addressing them or acknowledge even just like acknowledging them uh so that was yeah so that was our starting place and, and kind of our goal with it would you walk us through the three dialectics that you ended up picking yeah let me pull it up <laughs> <laughs> and yara as you're pulling that up one of the things that i'll add is you know even as we were thinking about sort of the title right, like the whole how not to be a Karen sort of came from, because if we're thinking about sort of the Karen meme, and one of the things we want to be clear, it's, you know, it's in the article, we reference both Karens and Chads, right, it's just white folks in general, who, um, if they don't deal with, right, the difficult emotions that come up, uh, in thinking about anti-racism, end up weaponizing their privilege to continue to oppress uh, black folks and community and folks of color, right? Is and that, so, what, is that a good definition for a Karen or a chatter? Yeah. I think I've heard Kevin too is someone who um, sort of weaponizes their uh, privilege to maintain or sustain oppression. Right? Does it matter if they knowingly do it or not knowingly do it? When we look at defining our terms, does it matter? No, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, I, I don't think it matters whether it's intentional or not, right? Because it, the impact or the consequences are the same, whether you intend to or not. Um, and we wanted to sort of start there, number one, because everybody's talking about Karens, right? And we had, we wanted to reflect something that was going on in this pop culture moment, but also offer something that I think is sustainable beyond this pop culture moment, right? Um, so In yeah. therapy, good therapists use this skill of starting where the client's at, and it's kind of exactly. like talking about uh, Karens and Chad's, like, us. we should join the conversation. What is it that you're trying to add to the conversation? Maybe we have the three dialectics now. Let's maybe hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. Um, and one, one quick thing that I'll add is, and I think that this is really relevant to your goals, um, Anna, is that specifically with the title, it was, it was a very intentional decision. And one of the things that was the hardest, um, like one thing that was difficult about it was getting out of the academic mindset. So I, I wish I had the list of all the previous ones that we were selecting. They sounded just like journal articles <laughs> for scientific. And so, you know, we, we wanted to, we were, we really thought about like, what is the goal of this? Like, how can we communicate our goal in just like the most efficient, understandable way that doesn't require you to like read the title over and over to get, you know, a glimpse of, um, of what we're trying to do. So the first one is um, speak out loudly against racism and the other side of it is don't talk over black folks. So the, the first part, speak out loudly against racism. So, you know, this, this is something that people hear um, all the time. Um, you know, we reference the, the phrase white silence is violence and we, well, I get, I'll just speak for myself, um, think that that is very important um, to use one's privilege uh, to to speak out against injustice um, and at the same time sometimes when someone only focuses on doing that and just like I'm going to speak out all the time I'm going to just keep speaking <laughs> um, the voice the issue becomes less clear and the focus becomes on you and 
your platform as a person who's speaking out against something and not about the thing itself, which is racism. Um, and so that's why, so, so sorry, so let me go back to that line of thinking. So sometimes people might say like, oh no, like I've made it about me. I'm just gonna not say anything at all because I'm just, you know, too worried about speaking out at this point. And so then that's the other part of the dialectic. It's just like, okay, so you don't have to make it about you. Um, and at the same time, you don't have to. I think just be silent, right? You don't have yeah. to, we're not asking you to stay silent, but follow the lead right. of the countless folks of color who are already doing this work, right? So using your privilege to really, and you know, Yara and Danielle had this wonderful sort of metaphor of like the backup singer, right? Is the backup singer is still actively involved, plays an important role in enhancing the overall message, but they are not the ones sort of taking control of the mic. Everyone should read this article just to see the visuals because the visuals that you put right along with it are so great. They convey that message so clearly. And one of them, I was like, oh, did they steal my profile picture of me doing karaoke or something like that? Because it's like speaking. I am in the demo of the person who wants to read an article, you know, with the good intentions enough to not want to be a Karen and know it's a thing, but still want to know more about, you know, um, missteps, because isn't that a human thing to do to mess up from time to time? So I think, you know, the colloquial way we're used to hearing this concept that you all are describing is, um, well, I don't want to mess up or, you know, what I tried and so-and-so said that wasn't PC or we don't say it like that anymore. And people get stuck or stop having the conversation or stop listening um, and so I can see why this, this was one of those top three in terms of most dangerous dialectics, because you could either um, be part of white silence, which maintains a status quo, which is inherently uh, violent and oppression to, to certain groups more than others, right? And so you're maintaining that um, or seeking over folks that have been doing this work for a very, very, very long time. one thing with this dialectic but also with the rest of them is that part of part of the point is that like there isn't one thing you know I think a lot of a lot of times people are looking for like the answer like I want to be a good ally and I just want a list of like give me the specific behaviors and I just want to do them and check them off and, and be done be done with it and I think the the general theme throughout all of these dialectics is that it doesn't work that way. It's an ongoing process. You're navigating things as you're doing it. You're, you're holding tensions as you do it. There, it's, it's not, there's not like a, a recipe to follow. Um, and in fact, that is the thing that you're doing is trying it this way and trying it that way. And it's a, it's a lifelong process is what you're saying. Folks should get ready to do this for a really long time, not just today or tomorrow or six weeks from now. Right, Most yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we also care about that's not necessarily front and center in this article, but that is front and center of what we offer as an organization is also giving people the skills to then sort of soothe themselves when they're struggling with the fear of making a misstep or having to deal with the aftermath of making a misstep because we do not expect you to be perfect. We expect you to be effective, right? And so like you were saying, Anna, there are gonna be missteps along the way because we're all continuing to learn, right? And instead of allowing those missteps to sort of shut you down from engaging in this work, learning the skills to soothe yourself, to take care of yourself and being able to proceed um, effectively, it's like, yeah, I think that's why I love the whole idea of, you know, distress tolerance or like boosting people's resilience, right? It's almost like they're anti-racism resilience, it, boosting their capacity to bounce back when they do encounter these missteps. Mm 
I think folks are tempted to shut down if they, you know, they don't get it right, right away, or they're worried about making missteps. So having those tools that we can come back to to aid listening and lower our, you know, heart rate and beats per minute and something else that DBT teaches us is a really valuable education tool when we're trying to persuade someone or help their understanding along is to share self-disclosures along the way. And I'm wondering if um, this fits into any one of the dialectics that you ended up picking, but as you are modeling for folks how to update their thinking or get, dialectics require you to get very flexible, um, we know that folks learn best when that's modeled for us. Is, has that become part of your work here in anti-racism is to share even your own learnings or missteps along the way? That's, I, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think with, I don't know if this will fully answer your question, but I think for me personally, as a person of color who is a, who's not black, with this specific um, article, when I was first thinking about it, like what Natalie was mentioning, I was like, oh, maybe I'll just like, write this up. But I think it was this dialectic that that made me pause and think about what the implications would be of um, of doing something like that. And I think that's, um, I mean, that was part of why uh, I thought that it was important to not just go out and speak loudly against racism, which I think was my first um, instinct and, and to kind of pause. And I, um, I'm very happy that that's the, just, that's the route that I went. Um, but I would say that that's, that's an example of a way that this dialectic was really present even in like the development and writing of this article for me personally. I think for Danielle and I and you know Danielle you can sort of weigh in too how you think about this you know as a black woman for me it's not so much modeling in in this process but using the skills of DBT to support my own wellness and well-being as I'm engaging white folks in this work recognizing that the impact and consequences of being on the forefront of this work um, is gonna mean something different for me as a black woman. Uh, trying to, I think, compassionately hold white people's sort of learning process in this work, right? While dealing with um, sort of the, the, my own things that come up for me as a black woman who's still dealing with uh, encountering racism on a daily basis. I could see why you would want to hold boundaries about what is and is not your responsibility. And if you're modeling anything, it, I hear um, survival and, and wellness and excelling in that vision. And Danielle, I'd be curious to hear what acceptance says about that when you're doing this work. And um, goodness gracious, we already said it's going to be a lifelong piece of work. And folks have been living with this work since they were born, right? And um, yeah, what does acceptance look like when we define boundaries about what is or isn't our responsibility or what we choose to do? I guess, it, I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that idea of acceptance and choice. Yeah, I think it's really important in terms of just the roles that um, as women of color, we have in ushering white people into this effective um, anti-racism advocacy because we're human. And if we're not attending to the boundaries that we need in order to continue this work, um, we're gonna burn out. And so I think that accepting that like, my goal is to help. Um, in these efforts and I can only help if I'm paying attention to my own boundaries. And so giving that space um, to check in with ourselves and we have, when we all meet together, we're talking about our capacity and whether we're honoring our capacity going forward. And I think that acceptance, just having that framework in our approach 
to how we're working with individuals and organizations is really important. And I think it models how that can also be used as a white person trying to engage in this work because you are human and you're going to have some missteps and you still have this goal of helping um, in anti-racist advocacy. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear, thank you so much for all of the thoughts that you've shared on this subject so far. I'm curious to hear kind of along these lines, um, I find that DBT is so flexible in its, its approach. I'm, I learned it in grad school more than a decade ago, and I haven't found someone who hasn't liked at least some part of it. And what I like about it the most and supports me as a therapist is that non-judgmental frame. It really alleviates me of any burden I might feel of telling someone what to do, because uh, I don't have that role or function. And, um, even in DBT consultation, the way I was trained, I have here in my office a mindfulness bell. And in my training, we were trained to ring it if we ever heard a judgment in the room. And that was part of our training to, because of course we're gonna make judgments and make mistakes. And so I'm telling you what I like about DBT before I ask whether, um, you know, do you feel like DBT is already flexible enough to contain some of the anti-racism concepts that we've discussed so far? Do you feel like that's a perfect fit already? The concepts are already contained right within DBT? Or do you feel like there's something that needs to be added um, to the discussion, whether it's in the form of representation or um, academic constructs or anything else. I'm just curious to um, hear about that overlap because you're working in, in such a um, compelling sweet spot between the two. You know, although DBT as it is has a strong focus on interpersonal effectiveness and interpersonal relations, I think at the end of the day, DBT is an individual level like psychological intervention. And it doesn't really address emotions that happen kind of at the group level or things that are tied to social identity um, and emotions that people might feel as a result of social identity. You know, when you think about things like white fragility and just general defensiveness, like those are, those are all things that aren't just happening within you. They're, they're associated with your group. And so I would say that that's, that's, and I mean, and then DBT wasn't designed, you know, obviously as an anti-racism thing. So it's not like this is anything wrong with DBT, but I would say that's the main thing that's missing from it in terms of the, what we add on to it and what we take from it and, and, and build with. That makes sense to me. I think a, a healthy critique would say, oh, DBT does include something about coordinating the environment and getting those supports. But what you're saying is the proportionality is really heavy on that individual coping side of things. And that's a really heavy burden for someone to bear just navigating through life. Um, and I know we should take care when we're um, comparing race and gender, but it reminds me a little bit of going to um, sex and intimacy training and learning about PTSD survivors and all the gymnastics they should do in order to feel comfortable in the context of intimacy when we as a culture could also train the whole culture about how to feel uh, safe and comfortable in um, our relationships. So that requires training both on the individual and in your, you're making a call out for much more structural safety uh, to support any kind of psychological safety. That makes a lot of sense to me. What do other folks think about that question of anti-racism work and DBT as a framework? Do you feel like there's alignment there or anything else that you've noticed? I, I think, you know, I would definitely sort of echo what Yara was saying. Um, one of the, one of the, um, mentors that we've been meeting with as we do this work has really been talking to us about 
um, how we even think about whiteness and the ways in which we disrupt whiteness and the extent to which we sort of name that explicitly, right? And so I think that's something that we are having, you know, DBT wasn't, like Yara said, DBT wasn't built to do that, but how do we sort of take this overlay of sort of whiteness and the various themes and patterns and constructs involved in whiteness and sort of overlay that with DBT, where, what are the areas that fit, what are the areas that don't? Um, and this is less about sort of DBT specifically, but, you know, Yara, Danielle, and I all uh, were trained in a clinical community psychology program. And so one of the things that we continue to pay attention to is, you know, our training in its current form is designed to support um, individual people, even though we're going into organizations, it is designed to support individual people's journey in anti-racism. And yet, what are the implications of, again, like targeting the individual if we're also then not um, targeting the organizational structure in which we're situated in, right? So if people are being called on to be effective anti-racist advocates and yet are still working in corporations that do not have a vested interest in overturning white supremacy, we have an inherent mismatch. And how, I think for me, that's been the biggest thing that I'm thinking about in terms of our sustainability. Like how sustainable is it gonna be for us as an organization doing these trainings um, if in our current form, there isn't sort of a built-in accountability piece at the system level. Well, I am curious to hear the other two dialectics. Is it okay if we go back to hear um, Yara, I don't know if you still have them in front of you or anyone yeah, else, would you mind reading? Sure, of course. One? Um, yeah, so the second dialectic is Black folks are the authority on their experiences of marginalization and racism, and Black folks are not an ideological monolith. Um, Danielle, do you want to explain that one? Sure. Uh, so this dialectic came to be just because of what we've observed um, in a lot of conversations when individuals are trying to draw upon people of color or black people's voices um, specifically, there's a tendency to, to lump us all together as one. And that tendency can sometimes work to the disadvantage of what um, the stated intent is. And so for some that can be citing voices that kind of line up with your opinion. And that in and of itself is not effective for actually going forward and looking at the um, group level um, dynamics there. And so really what this dialectic calls out is we are the authorities on our experience and listen to that and don't treat it as if you are the authority to decide whose voice makes the most impact um, when you're working. And so we really try to center this around this idea that you can do both, pay attention to Black voices um, and advocate um, for Black voices to be centered without weaponizing them in service of your own agenda. And so really when we're thinking about um, engaging in conversations, whether that's um, talking through talking through the different opinions that are relevant to the conversation or bringing in conversations or opinions that you think are relevant to the conversation, um, that can be guided through a process of engaging um, in lifting up the voices of people around you as opposed to lifting up voices that will lift up your opinion. And so Lots of times when we're thinking about um, how that can look, we can get stuck because if we're not sure what voice to point out or if we're not sure what source to go to, we can throw up our hands and say, well, you're saying that you're all not the same, but you're also saying to listen to you. 
And so there's a third way going forward, and that's listening to people of color directly and letting that inform um, the conversation and checking in with yourself to see exactly what's motivating the choices of the voices that you're lifting up. Danielle, what you're describing to me sounds like confirmation bias, where you have a belief, and it might even be one that you've had for a while and is comfortable to you, and you're, you're challenged on that. That's an uncomfortable place to be. And you're giving us this feedback of, um, yes, you need to um, treat Black voices as the authority on their lives and experiences as they are. And no, they're not limited to two or three. I don't know who you talk to at the local grocery store, but I haven't talked to that person yet, so I don't know what they said. You'd have to tell me, right? But um, there is a diversity and inclusion aspect to the conversation. And this is where what you're saying is reminding me of a conversation that I had just on a recent episode of the podcast where I had a chance to talk to professor of psychology Catherine Kinsler, she wrote a book called How You Say It, um, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. And it was a very interesting book to read. And it's along the same lines that you're saying. She made an interesting point that when you're talking with someone and what they're saying doesn't make sense to you, she encourages us to remember the research shows that a big part of communication is how you listen to the other person. So, and in fact, there are things that you can do in conversation to encourage the conversation along. And so I appreciate what she's saying. I think it matches what you're saying about not to be judgmental. And if you're tempted to say, that doesn't make any sense to me, you might actually have to, instead of putting the pressure on the other person to explain it to you in terms that you can understand, you might actually have to adjust your listening um, so that you can make sense of what folks have actually been saying. Um, when I think of Black Lives Matter, the fact that people have to still say that in such basic terms means that haven't, we haven't quite heard it yet. Does that make sense to you, what um, Professor Kinsler is saying, is that there are certain things that we could do to help um, the conversation along through listening? And, and what, what would you add to that conversation? What do you think? does help the conversation along if you're trying to make sense of this dialectic that um, Black folks are own their experience and know they're not any one kind of way. They're, um, she calls it the myth of monoculturalism, right? It's, it's multiculturalism. And I think that's a very important piece is tuning in to um, how you're listening and how you're engaging in conversations. It uh, kind of lines up with some of the skills that we try to train. Uh, when we go into organizations and the skill of tuning into what your values are and whether the way that you're engaging in this conversation is consistent with those values um, and whether your goals for whatever it is that the discussion is uh, surrounding, whether what you're saying and the voices that you're bringing in um, or the way that you're listening is consistent with those values and, that, and those goals. And so I think that it really it's really important thing to think through just lifelong journey because it's going to be a skill that you'll have to have to flex that muscle a lot as you go through life. Uh, the third one is listen to people of color directly and at the same time don't demand free emotional labor. So this one, um, you know, the the first. I think sometimes it's helpful to break it up into two chunks and discuss why both of them are important um, and what can happen if you overly focus on one without paying attention to the other. I think listen to people of color directly. You know, we've already kind of talked about why that's important. Um, I think that when that goes wrong is when, you know, you start seeing the formation of really time-consuming diversity committees that um, disproportionately are led by women of color and um, there's you know and I think the defensiveness that people might 
have when you push back against that is like, well, like you told me to listen to people of color directly. So, you know, by telling Danielle that I'm inviting her to take the lead on this diversity committee and I'm letting her know that she can take the lead on writing this statement on behalf of the entire organization. And you know what, Danielle, we're going to give you the privilege of, uh, you know, thinking of new initiatives to increase the representation of Black women in our department. You know, and so that's like where the defensiveness is coming from is people are saying, well, like you said to listen to you. So like we're listening to you, like how much more do you want me to listen? And so obviously the problem there is, I mean, there's lots of problems there, but one of them is that what's happening is um, that free labor is being demanded in those situations. And there's a lot of, um, you know, there when you're asking someone to do that for free, you are undervaluing their time. Um, you are, I mean, especially in an academic world, all of the time, you know, that Danielle is, is spending now writing this um, statement and developing all these initiatives, that is all time that she's not spending doing her her work, doing her self-care, um, doing lots of other things that are really important for her to thrive. Um, so so that's, that's kind of the, where that where that dialectic comes from it's like yes listen to people and also pay them when you can um and also make it so that it doesn't impact their opportunities in life um this you know. sounds like not only a chance to be dialectical but a chance to be intersectional when you think about economic privilege and gender privilege and who brings the coffee to the meetings and mm -hmm. what other expectations go with that Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think even just related to that in like a broader systemic context, if we think about sort of pay or wealth inequities, right, that already disproportionately impact communities of color, right, if I as a woman, as, as a black woman, already make less to the hour compared to white men, and now I'm being asked to do more without compensation, there are ways in which those wealth inequities are furthered, which is the exact opposite of anti-racism. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I think the other point is like, and so, so one option is to pay or to compensate or to take people up who are freely offering. I think the other challenge that uh, many folks of color experience in their organizations, at their companies is they're not offering to be on the diversity committees, right? They're not volunteering to be on the racial justice task force, um, right? But they're kind of being roped into or made to feel obligated to join. And so our, I think one of the things that we wanted to encourage is listen to the people who are freely giving this information. Or I, I know Danielle, you had, sort of mentioned in the in the blog, right? Like take advantage of all of the writings that already exist, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> that there's already a wealth of information on Google or in literature or in black art that people can use to educate themselves. It doesn't have to be sort of getting someone in a corner, you know, by the water cooler asking them to tell you about their personal experiences with racism. It sounds like you're trying to give awareness to all the different forms of invisible labor that people experience when somebody asks you to lead up the diversity and inclusion tasks force. Maybe their good intentions say it's nice to be asked, but they're not calculating the labor that actually I want to say no, but is that going to hurt my job or are they going to, am I going to lose niceness points? Well, I may as well just say uh, yes, because I haven't had the interpersonal class, yes, on how to say no and feel okay about it. That's a lot of things to have to navigate in a work context when not everyone is being asked to do the same thing. So it sounds like you're trying to give awareness to all those different gaps. Um, right, yeah. I mean, I think that the goal is to have a seat at the table, but not be expected to build the table yourself and then have other people kind of join it later. Yeah, I've heard a lot of times like, what do you want me to do about it? It's like, well, maybe <laughs> sit with that question a little bit longer and 
get back to me. That's also a way to contribute is to actually think to sit with that question a little bit longer and not expect other people to answer it for you all the time. I think another important piece is that within like organizational cultures um, or even within interpersonal relationships like that ask for some type of emotional labor like there is a goal there and there's a value there and checking back in with that because if you don't have a person who's freely offering this information kind of like Natalie was um, talking about you can still source other information that's in line with that goal um, and that can push forward whatever effort it is that you're trying to push forward by incorporating um, people of color on these task force or maybe you're asking your black employees like what exactly can we do here to help you feel more welcome? And recognizing that like racism is not just right now, it's a historical context. And so there's many things that you can change within your organization. There's many things that you can change within the way that you're interpersonally interacting with your friends or colleagues. And you don't have to rely on those same friends or colleagues to identify the ways that you can change those things. And so there's a way forward that doesn't require us throwing our hands up and saying that we can't do either of the things. Thank you so much for all the insights you've shared so far. I know that when it comes to DBT and anti-racism work, we, we've already said this is going to be um, lifelong work, right? Um, where would you direct folks? Do you have any favorites or best ofs um, in terms of resources that you go to on any of the topics that we've talked about so far? You get to pick your favorite one, whether it's a book or a podcast, whether it's something uh, that helps you with self-care or uh, learning about anti-racism and how to make that practical or actionable in, in your life. I'm sure you're seeing lots of the reading lists going around and all the good recommendations, but is there anything that you each want to add personally to the conversation that's helped you in this work? You know, the show really focuses on burnout prevention. So I'm curious to hear what helps you. I was gonna offer that, um, you know, Yara put together a wonderful resource list on our website, thedearproject.com. Um, and that's broken down by articles, videos, books. And so that's a great place for people to check out. I know for me personally, um, one of the organizations that I follow and continue to connect with is called Mindfulness for the People. I know mindfulness, which is a component of uh, DBT, um, is really important for me and my sort of personal self-care and having mindfulness offered and packaged in a way that speaks to my unique experiences as a Black woman is really important. Um, I'll also sort of shout out Sacred Chill West, which is a yoga studio here in Atlanta, but that has also gone virtual. Um, so they offer opportunities for people um, across the U.S. It is a yoga studio that's co-owned by a Black woman and white woman who are both deeply committed to social justice and anti-racism. And again, it has been um, a space for me as a Black woman to really be able to cultivate my own healing, my own self-care in a way that, again, I think takes into account my context, my experiences. Thank you for sharing those resources. And both of them have Instagram accounts, so you can look them up on Instagram. Lovely. That's great. Um, in terms of the, like, resources and, and things to reduce burnout. I think that in the in the world of um, like related to, to allyship, I think one of the trickiest uh, DBT skills, I can't remember even which acronym it, it falls under, but the one about um, comparisons, um, I feel like it's a tricky one. And it's one that I always like have a lot of disclaimers about of like, you know, there's a lot of issues with different types of like upward and downward comparisons. But I think with the issue of, of allyship specifically, when people feel burnout, 
related to that, that can be um, a helpful one. Um, when you feel exhausted, validating your exhaustion and at the same time, remembering that it's not comparable to the experiences um, that black and, and people of color have experienced for years. And like, yes, that fatigue is, it's, it's real. And um, at the same time, it's potentially not something that, um, you know, you should, I mean, it's certainly not something that you should seek support from um, like from your friends of color, I would say. And so kind of like finding a way to, to deal with that um, and validating it and at the same time viewing it in this broader context um, in a way that at least for me personally makes it smaller when you're reminded of, of kind of what it must be like to actually experience, you know, different like different types of um, experiences that you might not personally have had. They can just make your own fatigue just get a little bit smaller. Um, Yara, yeah. that's a great, a great plug for the wise mind accepts. That's the acronym. Yeah. Oh, that's it. <laughs> there's, there's one of those. Yeah, and I also hear balancing opposites, right? And terms of the only change is constant and everything has opposing forces. And this is where DBT also overlaps with um, maybe Danielle, you've studied acceptance and commitment therapy along the way because there's a lot of overlap here between self as context and wise mind and self as context reminds us that each and every one of us has our very own point of view. Doesn't that sound like wise mind? And uh, you're going to feel your feelings and they're going to feel a certain kind of way. And those, in fact, are sensors in our body designed to keep us safe. Um, and yet, uh, just because it feels a certain kind of way, doesn't tell you anything about anyone else's experience. You'd have to ask them or wait for them to tell you um, or pay them a really good rate to come to your organization and do an anti-racism training. That would be great, too. Right. And everyone would just learn, learn a bunch of good lessons. That'd be great. Danielle, did you have anything you wanted to share in terms of resources or burnout prevention tips? Yeah, just to echo the resources that um, Natalie and Yara have um, recommended, and also just in burnout, really learning to exercise that non-judgmental muscle. Um, I think that and having emotional clarity and taking time to sit with emotions is just, it's unquantifiable how helpful that can be in terms, in the lifetime journey of trying to avoid the burnout in these processes. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to sit with all of these recommendations um, as really good nutritious food for thought. I appreciate that. I want to echo Danielle's uh, piece of advice. I think what I take from this process is that I have made mistakes before. I will make mistakes again. And um, that is called experiential learning and mindfulness allows us to really tune into what that has to offer us and teach us. And I find that pretty hope inducing because it means there's infinite learning, which happens to be one of my values. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate the gift of time that all of you have offered by um, showing up and sharing such personal examples that you have along the way and putting yourselves on the front lines of this work and um, answering perhaps the same questions over and over again, but doing it from a, a place of generosity. And I'm really impressed by your work. So I appreciate you being on the show and just sharing um, how you've adapted these research back concepts and, and made them your own. I always encourage folks as they learn more about DBT to go ahead and take what the research teaches you and then add your own data to it and just make it your own. So maybe folks will listen to this uh, episode and follow you on Instagram or send you a message. Does anyone want to give a shout out where folks can find you? Where would, what would be the best places to go to stay tuned with your work or get in touch with any of you. 
Definitely. Oh, go ahead, Danielle. <laughs> we're on all the things. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can find us at, at the Deer Project on Twitter, as well as at the Deer Project on Instagram. We have our Facebook page, backslash the Deer Project and thedeerproject.com. Thank you to Natalie, Yara, and Danielle for joining me today to talk about their anti-racism work at the DEER Project. For those of you interested to learn more about self-care, therapy, and burnout prevention concepts, feel free to head over to therapyforreallife.com. Have a great day. also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.